This is Choice or Coercion, the biography of Norplant podcast, and I'm Justina Licata. On December 10th, 1990, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration approved Norplant for public use. Norplant was the first subdermal implantable contraceptive device. It consisted of six silicone rubber rods filled with a man-made hormone that prevented pregnancies for up to five years. Initially, many U.S. doctors and long-standing feminist groups hailed it as the greatest advancement in contraceptive technology since the 1960s when the birth control pill first became available to the public. Two days later, on December 12th, the Philadelphia Inquirer published a controversial editorial titled Poverty in Norplant, Can Contraception Reduce the Underclass? The article suggested that Norplant could help address the growing rates of black poverty. While stating that women should not be forced to use Norplant, the editorial proposed using it to curb black poverty and teenage pregnancy by offering women on welfare monetary incentives to use the device. Because of its racist connotations, the editorial received national media attention. It infuriated many feminists, particularly women of color and indigenous women, who spoke out against the editorial and drew attention to the long-standing reproductive oppressions of poor and minority women. Ultimately, the backlash forced the Inquirer to print an apology that described the piece as misguided and wrongheaded. The controversy over the Enquirer piece was not an isolated incident. Norplant was part of a wave of controversial social policies in the 1990s that promoted the use of population control practices to attempt to curb the reproduction of poor minority women across the U.S. Federal, state, and local governments, along with a private organization, tried to force poor and minority women to use Norplant. These efforts were part and parcel of the war on drugs, raising rates of mass incarceration, and attacks on welfare recipients. While historians have traced the effects of late 20th century welfare, drug, and policing policies on people of color, Norplant's history demonstrates that the backlash was even more widespread than most have recognized. And it included policies specifically intended to reduce poor women's childbearing. This is Choice or Coercion, the biography of Norplant a podcast that examines Norplant's history and more specifically the way governmental institutions use the contraceptive device to control certain populations of women's bodies. I'm your host, Justina Licata, and I'm a 20th century historian. My research focuses on Norplant, population control, feminism, and social policies in the 1990s. In this first episode, I will provide an overview of Norplant's development leading up to its FDA approval in 1990. The following three episodes will each feature one vignette that explores Norplant's connection to the population control politics in the 90s and coercive sterilization practices. To explore this topic, we will listen to historical news footage, talk to present-day college students, and one reproductive justice activist. Also, while we are examining the past, I hope that this podcast will shed light on current political debates about women's reproduction and who has the right to choose when a woman should or should not have a child. Let's begin with a very short history of Norplant's development. 
The first plans for Norplant emerged in the 1960s when Dr. Sheldon Siegel, an embryologist, worked with a team to invent the technology that made the implant possible. The Population Council, a New York-based non-governmental organization with associates around the globe, financed the development and testing of Norplant. This organization promoted population control as the answer to reducing global poverty, and it focused on developing contraception for poor, uneducated women, especially in impoverished nations. Historians have shown that population control closely resembles eugenics. In the late 19th and early 20th centuries, scientists and politicians viewed eugenics as a legitimate science dedicated to improving the human race. Eugenicists argued that undesirable traits like alcoholism and feeble-mindedness could be passed down from parent to child, and they considered the sterilization of individuals considered unfit for reproduction a humane act. Eugenicists' reputation was denigrated when Nazis used eugenics to warrant the atrocities they performed during the Holocaust. Following World War II, society determined that eugenics was not a reputable science. Therefore, scientists and political leaders no longer use the term eugenics, but the practice of forcefully sterilizing populations considered undesirable continued. Under the guise of population control and family planning, the U.S. government and international non-governmental organizations continued to sterilize vulnerable communities. Norplant was essentially a product of the population control movement, and consequently, it was initially designed to limit population growth in the global south. Before Norplant was introduced onto the American market in the early 1990s, it was mostly tested in the global south in nations like Bangladesh, Brazil, Egypt, and Indonesia. In the 1980s, indigenous feminists in these nations were some of the first to discover Norplant's link to population control politics and temporary sterilization practices. Their investigations of the drugs testing trials revealed alarming ethical violations, including the dissemination of inaccurate and incomplete information and the use of threats to attract participants. Some trial participants also reported that healthcare practitioners refused to remove the Norplant device upon their request. For example, in Egypt, one feminist investigator met a woman who never experienced a normal menstrual cycle during the four years she was on Norplant. Initially, she lost her period altogether, and later she suffered from hemorrhaging for several weeks at a time. The Norplant patient was also afflicted with dizziness, headaches, and fatigue. She asked her physician to remove the Norplant on several occasions, but the doctor refused. Eventually, the woman sought help from another doctor outside of her family planning clinic who agreed to remove her implant, but he charged her a fee and he said he did it only as a favor of her husband. Feminists in the Global South warned international feminists and women's health activists, including women of color and indigenous women in the U.S., of Norplant's ties to temporary sterilization practices. This brings us to where I began this episode. In December 1990, Norplant was FDA-approved, and many women, doctors, and some feminist organizations, including Planned Parenthood and the National Organization of Women, celebrated the new wonder drug. But it soon became clear that Norplant was not the perfect contraceptive. Let's hear from one woman who struggled with her Norplant implant. Well, when I had it put in, I was 19, almost 20 years old. Okay. Okay, um, the doctor who put it in, like I said, I think I knew more about it than him as he was putting it in. 
I was walking him through how it's supposed to be laid out in my arm. She had learned about Norplant from a friend who had loved her experience with the implantable contraceptive device. But unfortunately, she suffered from some severe side effects. Let's hear some more about her experience. She told me how she had lost weight on it. She hardly ever had a period on it. And I'm like, okay, I, I can see that. That would be nice. And no, I had all the opposite symptoms. <laughs> I gained I gained a lot of weight on it. I, like I said, my blood pressure stayed at, at like 80 over 50 the whole time I was in nursing school with it. I, I had a period nonstop. If I got a day off a month, I was kind of lucky. And I don't mean just spotting. I mean heavy periods. Did that lead you uh, to have um, like fatigue and things because of the, oh, I'm always. assuming you were anemic based on that? Oh, yes. Okay. Oh, yes. Like I said, the whole reason I had it removed, because at first the doctor put it in, refused to remove it for me. Um, I had to find another doctor, and he was like, we don't want to take this out until your husband has a vasectomy, if this is what you want with no more kids. I said, I don't want any more kids. (laughs) 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 He says, okay, and we scheduled my husband's vasectomy, and it wasn't even two weeks later. I blacked out behind the car wheel. Police officer waked me back up. And I called him that night, and I said, called the doctor that when I got home that evening, and I said, this thing's got to go. I can't do this anymore. I told him what happened, and he had a conference that he was supposed to speak at, and he missed his conference to take it out. And what should have been 15, 30-minute removal took him almost two hours to dig them out of my arm. Did you have scarring because of that? Oh, yes, I do. Okay. Oh, yes, I do. Women of color feminists and some women's health activists predicted that Norplant would be used to abuse women's reproductive rights. For example, lawyer and women's health activist Sybil Shamewald spoke about her feelings regarding the contraceptive implant. She believed... It was not a safe product. It was not a tested product. It was... uh, There were all kinds of sequela from uh, Norplant. In addition, Sharon A. Satoyer, a Native woman and reproductive justice activist, remembered how difficult it was for Native women to convince doctors to remove their Norplant devices. Well, they were inserting Norplant into women, and then when a woman would start experiencing the contraindication, uh, they were refusing to, uh, to remove it. Uh, On the other hand, for many women, Norplant was a form of insurance. It ensured that they would not get pregnant for five years, and that allowed them time to finish their education, get a steady job, and gain a balance in their life without fear of becoming pregnant. This was true for one woman I spoke with a couple years back. After having an abortion, she chose to have Norplant inserted. At that point in her life, she did not have a solid job or home, and she needed time to regain stability before becoming pregnant. For her, Norplant ensured her that time. I don't know what would have happened in those five years if I didn't have it. Uh, And if you just look at where I started and where I ended in five years, you know, I had a job, you know, 
Yeah. And there's no telling yeah. what would have happened in those five years. Because I was in my early to mid-20s. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know? Yeah. And so there were there were there would have been many opportunities for something to have happened in those five years and there's no telling. As you can see, well, I mean here, this is a podcast after all. These are complicated issues. In the following three episodes, I will tell you about three specific incidents that occurred in the early 1990s when judges, lawmakers, and community leaders employed Norplant in their attempt to control certain women's reproduction. Through our exploration of these events, I encourage you to question, was this choice or was this coercion? The next episode will focus on the first time a government entity in the U.S. employed Norplant as a tool of sterilization. In January 1991, California County Judge Howard Broadman ordered Darlene Johnson, a 28-year-old African-American pregnant mother of four, to have Norplant inserted into her arm for three years as part of her probation. My second episode will take a close look at Johnson's case. To learn more about the history of Norplant and social policies in the 1990s, please come back for episode two. I am Justina Licata, and this is Choice or Coercion, the biography of Norplant podcast.